Well, Merry Christmas. It's great to be with you this morning. I have great news for you. You have already applied my sermon. Just by showing up this morning, most sermons build up to an application that you have to go out and do, but the sermon is the application this morning. You hit pause on the busyness of life, and you chose to come to church on a cold and rainy day and be in God's word with God's people, and so you win. You've you done it. You, you already succeeded in applying this message because you chose to show up and worship Jesus, and that's what we're going to do this morning. That's what this morning is all about. We're going to worship the Son. I want to begin by asking you a question. How many of you in your homes have pictures of your family hanging on the walls or on a mantle or a table or bookshelf? How many of you have pictures of your family, especially your kids? Most of you, I would think, even those of us who are not very sentimental like me, we still have pictures of our family, especially our kids. And as our kids get older and and go through milestones of life, the pictures in our home multiply. So that at some point, visitors can show up in our home and just walk down the hallway and see the life story of every one of our children. Because they just track through the pictures. They see the newborn picture and the first birthday, little league team, graduation, maybe the wedding, maybe grandkids. They see the whole story of your child right there on the wall. They see all the great moments, all the high points in your child's life. So with that in mind, I want us to ask ourselves this morning, really the question of the morning. What pictures of Jesus would God the Father hang on his walls? Now, I don't know if God has hallways or if there's pictures in heaven. You just got to humor me for a little bit. We're going to assume that God has hallways and that he likes photographs. And so what pictures of God the Son would God the Father hang on his walls? What pictures of Jesus would God the Father want visitors to his home to see? Now, I can't answer that question exhaustively because I'm not God, but, but I can tell you about five pictures of Jesus that I'm sure are on the Father's wall. Five pictures of Jesus that God longs to show anyone who will just stop long enough to look. So if, if God carried a wallet, these would be the first five pictures that he would pull out when he wants to show you his son, his kid. So the five pictures of Jesus that God the Father has on his wall. First picture that you would see as you walk down the hallway of God the Father's house, first picture of Jesus would be the newborn pic. And we all have these pictures of our kids when they're born, maybe a few days after they're born. Here's mine, of my twins, Luke and Gracie. About seven days after they were born, you look at that picture, what words come to your mind? Well, I look at it and I think, beautiful and cute and, and cuddly and soft and clean and wonderful. Jesus' newborn pic doesn't look like this. Because Jesus wasn't born in a hospital and he wasn't wrapped in sanitary blankets. Jesus was born into an animal trough before the days of running water. And so Jesus' newborn pick is filthy. It's not attractive to look at. I'm, I'm sure Joseph tried to wipe off the blood with whatever rag he could find, but some is still there mixed with mud and grime and hay and animal dung. Jesus is just filthy. It's not a beautiful newborn picture. It's exactly what Isaiah told us to expect. 700 years before Jesus arrived, Isaiah said he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Jesus' newborn pig isn't beautiful. It's not a picture that any modern American would ooh or ah over. In fact, we would be offended by it. It would be revolting to us because no baby should be born into those kind of conditions, especially this baby, the son of God, the creator. 
And yet you, you look at that, at that picture of the creator covered in filth and you begin to understand the depth of humility displayed by the son of God on that first Christmas morning. Here's the creator, the almighty son of God. He did not have to become human. That alone was a huge step of humility, but he didn't just become human. He became a poor human. He became a poor human born in squalor and filth, like a homeless person, like a slave. Paul talks about that depth of humility in Philippians 2. He says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or held onto, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave. The creator chose to be born like a slave in an animal trough covered in filth and dirt and grime. And so when you look at that picture of Jesus as a newborn, the words that come to your mind are not beautiful and soft and cuddly and clean and wonderful. The words that should come to your mind as you look at that newborn picture of the Son of God are words like humility or even humiliation. So here's the creator of all things covered in filth. I imagine that Satan was rejoicing to see what he saw that first Christmas night. It's humiliation for the Son. Second word that should come to your mind is sacrifice. Sacrifice that the, the king of heaven and earth left the beauty and bliss and perfection of heaven to come and, and live in this sin, uh, broken, sinful, broken, cursed world in the midst of all that filth and squalor. And finally, the word that should come to your mind is love. So that's ultimately what motivated Jesus to, to take such a step of humility, to make such a sacrifice was out of love for God the Father and love for you and for me. And so this first picture of Jesus on God the Father's wall, this filthy newborn picture, is there to remind us of the humility and sacrifice and unparalleled love of the Son of God displayed on that first Christmas morning. That's the first picture. But God beckons you further. You keep walking down the hall and you get to a second picture. Second picture of, of God the Son. And this one, is, this one is a little odd. This one doesn't fit. Because it's not in chronological order. All the other pictures on the wall, they, they go forward in time. But this one goes backwards. It's kind of like those cheesy, fake, black and white, Old West pictures that families will get at theme parks. Except this one's not fake. And it's not Old West. It's much, much older than that. This is the oldest picture that God has of God the Son. It's the picture of God the Son as the eternal creator. All babies ever born begin life in the womb of, of their mother, with one exception. John talks about this one very unusual baby whom he calls the, the word of God. In, in John chapter 1, John says, in the beginning was the word, that is Jesus, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. John talks about life in the beginning, before anything was created, before anything was made, there was already father and son. And you learn from other scriptural passages, spirit. So the Trinity, father, son, and spirit are uncreated. They have no beginning. They have no end. They have always existed. And so let's just be clear. On that first Christmas morning when Jesus was born, he was already infinite years old. 
what Jesus spoke about in, in John chapter eight. He said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Abraham, he lived approximately 2100 BC, 2100 years before Jesus was born. Jesus says, before that, I already am. He uses the present tense. It's bad grammar, good theology. Because Jesus is saying that there is no past tense verb to describe life before I existed. There's no future tense verb to describe life after I existed. There is only the eternal present with me. Jesus has no beginning, he has no end, he stands above time. He did not begin to exist on that first Christmas morning because in him was life. He was not dependent on Mary for life. He's the creator of life. He's the creator of all things. So so just understand in that little manger scene that you set up in your home, Jesus created the wood that became his manger and, and he created the grass that became the hay that kept his little body warm and he even created his mother who gave birth to him. Now, the purpose of this second picture is, is to help us to not be fooled by all those manger scenes that we have all over our house, all over town, with these little plastic, weak, little tiny baby Jesuses. You see them, and, and it's easy to forget that Jesus was no mere baby. Jesus was small only by choice. Jesus was weak only by by choice. Jesus was dependent on his parents only by choice, but at any moment on that first Christmas day, Jesus could have chosen otherwise. He could have chosen to go all Mount of Transfiguration on his parents and terrified everyone in Bethlehem and beyond. But in humility, he chose to veil all of his infinite deity and majesty in the limited flesh of that infant body. Second picture is there to remind us, this is no mere baby you're worshiping. This is the eternal creator, the eternal omnipotent son of God. That's the second picture. But God keeps moving us down the hallway. It's time to look at the the third picture of Jesus, his son. This is the perfect picture, the picture that every parent wants. His or her child at, at their very best. This is God the Father's picture of Jesus as the ideal man. All human beings were created to glorify God by living in righteousness and truth, but all of us have failed. From Adam on, all of us have chosen sin. We've chosen to disobey. We've chosen to rebel against God. We've chosen to serve ourselves rather than serving God. Paul says in Romans 3, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God with one exception, one human being who did not fall short. Jesus says of himself, he's speaking, he's praying to God the Father, John 17 Verse four, Jesus says, I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Jesus is the only human being who's ever lived, who ever will live, who has the right to say those words. He's the only human being who has ever fully glorified God with his life. He's the only human being who has ever fully accomplished God's will for his life. All the rest of us have fallen short, but Jesus did not. This third picture of Jesus as the perfect man, I think it's a picture of him in the wilderness, being tempted by Satan. You know the story. Jesus fasted for 40 days. He's been without food. And Satan shows up and tempts him with bread. And Jesus says no. And then Satan tempts him with fame. And Jesus says 
No. And then he tempts him with power and comfort. And Jesus says, no. And then Satan leaves because Jesus won. Jesus did what none of us have ever done. He stared the most incredibly difficult temptation in the face and said, no. He was tempted to the utter limits of what a human can endure. And still he chose to obey. It's what the author of the book of Hebrews says in chapter four. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let's be clear. This picture is one that God the Father is really proud of. He loves to show off this picture because it's a great picture. It's his son living the ideal human life, being the man, being the person that all of us were called to be, were designed to be, but none of us live up to this. He's our model. He's our example. Jesus, the perfect man. Now, you would expect the perfect man to live a blessed life, right? He's perfect. He's wise. He's kind, he's righteous, he's always truthful. You would expect the world to praise that, right? This is the kind of man that every father wants for his daughter. This is the kind of man that every company wants for its boss. The kind of man that every nation wants for its leader. But that's not how it worked out for Jesus. Not in this broken, sinful world. Instead of giving him praise for his perfection, the world gave him a cross, a crucifixion. This is the fourth picture, the first portrait of Jesus that God points your attention to. It's the happy, sad picture of Jesus on the cross. It's happy, sad for the father. It's, it both makes him incredibly happy and incredibly sad to look at this picture. Incredibly sad because it's a moment of incredible tragedy and suffering for his son and no parent wants that. But also incredibly happy Because it's a moment of incredible love and incredible victory displayed by Jesus. You see both of those themes come together in Isaiah 53. Turn to Isaiah 53. Long before Jesus was born, Isaiah predicted that there would be both tragedy and incredibly sacrificial love associated, connected with the Son of God on the cross. Both tragedy and love joined together. Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 53, start with me in verse 4. 700 years before Jesus showed up. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Isaiah predicted that the perfect man would make the ultimate sacrifice for his far from perfect peers. That Jesus, who knew no sin, would become sin on our behalf. Now, why? Why did Jesus have to do that? Well, because God must do what is right. God must punish sin. God must judge evil. He cannot excuse it. He cannot overlook it. We are sinful. We, We are evil. And so God must punish. God must judge our sin and our evil. And so Jesus did the most loving thing any person has ever done before. 
He took all of our sin, all of our evil, all of our iniquity, all of our transgressions off of us and onto himself and suffered the punishment and judgment that we deserve. That's what happened on the cross. The son of God took your punishment. He took the wrath of God that you deserved upon himself and died in your place so that you could be forgiven, so that you could have eternal life as a free gift. That's actually the good news we celebrate on Christmas. Not that the son of God was born as a baby, but that the son of God was born as a baby who grew up into a man who chose to die for our sins so that we could be forgiven. That's the good news that Paul talks about in Romans 6, verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, you may not know this, but traditionally the reason that we give gifts to each other and to our kids on Christmas morning is because of this verse. You give gifts to your kids to teach them this verse, that that there is a gift above all gifts that God, the Father, has already given to us his son, to die in our place so that we could have eternal life for free. That's the good news of Christmas. That's why we give gifts to each other to remember, to remind ourselves, to celebrate the fact that in Jesus, God has already given us the greatest gift mankind has ever known. Forgiveness from sin and eternal life for absolutely free. It's a gift. But like all gifts, you have to receive it. For it to be yours, you have to say yes to that gift. If Julie goes and buys me a gift and wraps it and puts it under the tree, it does not become mine until I receive it. If I instead say to her, no thanks, and take her gift and drop it in the trash, well, that gift is not mine. Now, Julie's not going to force that gift on me. She is going to make me sleep on the couch, but but she's not going to force the gift on me, just like God does not force salvation on us. He he allows us to choose whether or not we want to receive the gift of eternal life. We must say to God, yes, God, I, I believe that you are offering me eternal life as a free gift. I don't have to work for it. Jesus earned it on the cross. You are offering it to me for free. And I say, yes, I want that. You gotta say yes. So if there's something that's holding you back from saying yes to God's gift of eternal life in Jesus Christ, I wanna invite you to come talk to me after the service or someone else here. We don't have everything figured out. We still have lots of questions, lots of struggles, and lots of doubts. But what we do know is that there is a God who loves you so much that he gave his own son to die in your place, to take the punishment that you deserved for you so that you could be forgiven and have eternal life absolutely for free. And we are desperate for you to receive that gift. So please come talk to us today. That's the fourth picture that God has on his wall happy, sad picture of his son on the cross dying for sins so that we could be forgiven. But God doesn't want you to linger too long on that picture. It's a really significant picture. It changed the history of the human race. But Jesus didn't stay on the cross. So God doesn't want you to stay there looking at that picture. It did not last long. God wants you to move down the wall to the fifth and final picture. The picture of where Jesus is today. This is the current picture of of the son of God. It's what he looks like right now. The current picture is Jesus as the conquering king. This picture is revealed to us in the book of Revelation. So turn to Revelation chapter one. 
final picture of Jesus, Revelation chapter one. So Jesus died on a Friday and he was buried in a tomb, but on Sunday he rose and he rolled the tombstone away and he revealed himself to his followers and then he ascended to heaven in glory where John meets him in a vision in John chapter one. So John the apostle who spent years with Jesus, he meets Jesus as he is right now, today. He sees him and and here's what he sees. Look with me, Revelation chapter one, starting in verse 14. It's describing Jesus. His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. So when Jesus came to earth the first time, on the first Christmas morning, he was not attractive. There was nothing particularly noteworthy about his appearance. He, he was humble. He was a servant. He was poor. He was weak. None of that is true of Jesus today. None of that's true anymore. Now Jesus is glorious. He's majestic. He's powerful. He is overwhelming. He is utterly holy and, and terrifying. Did you catch that? John, it's John the apostle. He, he lived with Jesus for three years. He was like one of Jesus's best friends and he planted churches and he wrote a bunch of your New Testament. Really stellar guy, way better than any of us. And yet he sees Jesus as he is right now. And what does he do? He falls on his face in abject terror. Because he's standing before the splendor and glory of the Son of God as as conquering king. It absolutely overwhelms John. Jesus in the book of Revelation is absolutely overwhelmingly glorious and overwhelmingly powerful. Later in the book, John tells us what to expect when Jesus comes back, which is going to come soon. At some point soon, Jesus is going to come back to earth and finish God's plan for humanity. And John describes that moment when Jesus returns to this planet. It's very different than the first coming. Here's what it looks like. Revelation 19, John says, I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and wages war. From his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty and the rest. That is all of humanity lined up in rebellion against God were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. Kind of gruesome. The sword coming out of the mouth of Jesus, common biblical metaphor, it's talking about the words, the speech of Jesus. So, so what happens? This is the battle of Armageddon. You may have heard of it. The, the battle at the end of, of human history, the battle of Armageddon, all of, of sinful rebellious humanity gathers together, all of their armies lined up against the son of God. Jesus shows up and speaks a word and they all die. It's the most boring battle in the history of the human race. Totally anticlimactic. There's no marching. There's no fighting. There's no heroics. Jesus speaks and evil dies. That's how powerful Jesus is right now. He's not humble anymore. He's overwhelmingly, terrifyingly powerful. He is the invincible king. He shows up and evil flees before him. 
So on this Christmas holidays, you're worshiping Jesus. Let's, let's just be really clear. You're not worshiping Jesus in the manger anymore. You're not worshiping Jesus, the perfect man walking along Galilee anymore. You're not worshiping Jesus hanging on a cross anymore. You're worshiping this Jesus, the invincible, conquering, glorious king right now in heaven, ruling over the universe, just waiting for the day when he comes and finishes everything, sets everything right forever. And some of you need to hear that, that truth today. You need to think about that reality today. Because statistically speaking, this week, the week after Christmas, is one of the worst of the whole year for depression and suicide. Because Christmas is supposed to be this incredibly happy time. It's an incredibly joyful time with family and friends that, that fills you with warmth and cheer and jolly. But for most of us, it's not that. Maybe there's moments that are joyful, but there's also a lot of stress and it never quite seems to live up to expectations. And so here we are a few days after Christmas and many of us find ourselves a little disappointed and a lot exhausted and kind of depressed and discouraged and it's cold and rainy outside and we're just really tired of it all. And so what we need to remember as we gather to worship Jesus this morning, he's not that little baby anymore, weak and humble and quiet. He's not that, that man walking around in Israel anymore. He's not the savior hanging on the cross. He is right now your conquering king and he's coming back soon for you. He's gonna fix everything. Your life is gonna get better when Jesus returns and it's not gonna disappoint you, I promise. It will fulfill all of your hopes and dreams and longings. It will be better than you could have ever imagined that it would be. Jesus is your invincible king right now. If he showed up actually right here, right now, all of us would be on our face quaking before him in terror because he's so beautiful, so glorious, so holy, so awesome. That is the Jesus you worship this Christmas and he's coming back soon. Your life will get better. He will make all things right. That's the reason we have hope and joy and peace this Christmas holiday. So let's give thanks to Jesus, our King. Heavenly Father, we praise you and we thank you for the gift of your son. And Lord Jesus, we praise you and we thank you that you chose the path of humility and suffering and pain and death and you did it for us. You did it, it was your free choice. It was not compelled upon you. You chose to do that out of love for us so that we could be saved from our sins, so that we could be forgiven and redeemed. And we praise you for that. You are worthy of all of our worship and obedience. We adore you, Lord Jesus. But Lord, it's so easy for us to forget that today you are the conquering king. You are glorious, you are majestic, you are holy. We forget that this time of year. We just see you as that little baby in the manger. I pray that you would remind us that, that you are all powerful, that you are omnipotent and that you are coming back soon. I pray that you would help us to believe that there is no problem that is too big for you to fix. I pray that you would help us to believe that our best days are in front of us when you return and it will not disappoint. We praise you, Lord Jesus, that you're coming back soon. We praise you, Heavenly Father, for the gift of your Son. We thank you for these pictures of Jesus that we've been able to look at this morning. I pray that they would linger in our minds, that we would look at them, that we would find hope and peace and freedom and strength by looking intently at your Son, Jesus Christ, who is worthy of our worship, who is worthy of our praise. In his name we pray, amen. God bless you guys. Happy New Year.